With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jimmy from Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hey, here's what we got for you right now, man. We have the best of Fearless featuring Jason Whitlock. Just kind of an overlook of what went on on the show. In case you missed it, going to give you a little dibby of what you might have missed, all right? First of all, on Monday's show, we had the Kamala Harris incident. For those of you who are familiar with it, if you know what happened, Kamala just basically said, um, I don't think that my people have the ability to go to Kinko's and get a photocopy. You know Jason loved that. Come and listen in and see what he has to say. Slavery to an ideology disconnected from the word of God produces ignorance and bigotry. Vice President Kamala Harris is not stupid. Her parents earned graduate degrees from Cal Berkeley. Harris graduated from Howard University. She earned a law degree from a solid school in San Francisco. Her, <laughs> her nervous cackle and occasional illogical word salads cause her political foes to question her intelligence. I don't. The political ideology she's forced to defend provokes ignorance. Her boss, President Joe Biden and her party, the Democratic Party, have framed any attempt at verifying the identity of voters as a new form of Jim Crow laws intent on disenfranchising black, brown, poor, city, and rural voters. On Friday, BET host Soledad O'Brien asked Harris if she would politically compromise on calls for enhanced voter ID requirements. The vice president's response sparked derision across social media. Listen to this. Is agreeing to voter ID one of those compromises that you'd support? I don't think that we should underestimate what that could mean. Because in some people's mind, that means, well, you're going to have to um, Xerox or, or, or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't, there's no Kinko's, there's no Office Max near them. People have to understand that when we're talking about voter ID laws, be clear about who you have in mind and what would be required of them to prove who they are. Of course people have to prove who they are, but not in a way that makes it, them, it almost impossible for them to prove who they are. It's an absolutely ridiculous response. I'm surprised she didn't start cackling. But what was Kamala supposed to say given the position of the Democratic Party? Had she followed her party script and argued that black people in major cities struggle to acquire government IDs, we would be calling it Kamala's Kinko's comment. KKK, you like that alliteration? She gave the best possible answer given the current Democratic Party playbook, which is nothing more than a derivative of the KKK's philosophy. The current ideology of the left is that America houses a vast number of people, black, white, and brown, incapable of taking care of basic responsibilities because of systemic oppression. All standards of responsibility must be lowered so that these helpless people can survive in a system that exploits them. 
That pretty much summarizes the platform of the left. Empathy justifies the ideology. Pity fuels the reaction. Unfortunately, the absence of both faith in a higher power and belief in the equality of man transforms empathy and pity into a lethal mixture of ignorance, bigotry, and elitism. Religious conservatives do not lack empathy or pity. Their faith, combined with their belief in the equality of mankind, causes them to pursue a teach a man to fish approach to inequality. I'm a religious conservative, not a political one. I've never voted. Throughout my life, empathy and pity have driven me to reach back and provide opportunities for family members, friends, and young people from more difficult circumstances than my own. I've never lowered standards for anyone I've helped. If they're unwilling to meet my standards, I move on and help those willing to step up. If they choose to seek excuses or wallow in victim mentality, I move on and help those willing to step up. I can rattle off countless stories and examples. I'll mention one. Years ago, a Ball State football player, Dante Love, broke his neck during a football game against Indiana University. I was at the game. I'm a Ball State football alumnus. I went to the hospital that night to check on Dante. He was a high-level NFL prospect. His football career ended that night tragically. He came from a very difficult background. People were depending on him making it to the NFL. I promised him that night, when he thought he might never walk again, that I would help him transition to a new life without football. Dante regained use of his lower extremities. He graduated from Ball State. Over the next couple of years, he had a difficult time adjusting to civilian life as a non-pampered potential pro athlete. He felt sorry for himself, thought the world owed him something. He was irresponsible. Frustrated, <laughs> I called my good friend Isaiah Thomas, the NBA legend, for advice. Isaiah came from a background as difficult as Dante's. Isaiah advised me to remove my support of Dante. I called Dante and had him drive to my apartment. I had him remove his few belongings from the car I had loaned him I parked the car in my extra parking spot and I left Dante to fend for himself. I didn't care how or if he made it back to his apartment. I didn't speak to Dante for many months. The next time I talked to him, he was a changed man. He's been a changed man ever since. He calls the day I left him standing in the streets a blessing from God. Over the past decade, Dante Love has become one of the best human beings I know. He's a terrific father to his nine-year-old son, Dante Jr. He's a self-taught biblical scholar who schools me. He's built a successful career at Aerotech. I consider Dante my adopted son. He learned to fish. I could write a book on all the obstacles Dante has overcome. My brief telling of his story does not remotely do his life justice. It's insulting when I hear elite politicians argue that poor people or rural people can't do this or that. You mean David slayed, slayed Goliath? Dante slayed innumerable hardships? But I'm supposed to believe poor black and white people can't secure government IDs? Are you kidding me? The thinking is elitist bigotry brought on by ideological slavery and an unethical pursuit of political power. Are political conservatives unethical in their pursuit of power? No question about it. That's why I don't vote. Is their pursuit of power built on the racist premise that black people are incapable of taking care of themselves or the elitist premise that poor whites are too damn stupid to know what's best for them? I just don't see it. The sales pitch of Kamala Harris's political party is founded in anti-black racism and white supremacy. Many of the high-profile black advocates of the Democratic Party's approach believe their success can be directly attributed to the lowering of standards. 
This is especially true of black liberals with Ivy League degrees. On average, they enter Harvard, Yale, etc., with lower test scores, grade point averages, and family wealth than their white peers. They're made to feel inferior and dependent on white empathy and pity. Many of them carry those feelings of inferiority and dependence the rest of their lives. Those who reject those feelings and or fail to promote black dependence on white help are quickly branded as disloyal, sellouts, and Uncle Toms. I've never felt inferior to anyone a day in my life. My faith doesn't allow it. My dad, my father wouldn't allow it. Say that, say that. I'm appreciative of people who have helped me throughout my career, but I put in the work. In 1991, I almost cost myself my first full-time job. The Charlotte Observer required me to do a two-week tryout before offering me a job in its Rock Hill, South Carolina bureau. At the completion of the audition, the editor smugly told me I was an, un, uh, an affirmative action hire. I told her, don't give me the job if I'm unqualified. I just showed you the last two weeks I can do the job, I said. Over the next 14 months, I set fire to the rain inside that bureau. At a salary of $23,000 a year, I wrote more front page attention grabbing stories in a handful of months than people the newspaper was paying three times as much to write A1 stories. The biggest criticism in my yearly evaluation was that I worked too many hours. When I left the Charlotte Observer for a much better, higher paying job, the editor of the entire paper, Rich Oppel, a man I'd never met, was furious. He hunted me down in the Charlotte newsroom and told me, you'll come back through the same door you're leaving. He didn't offer me a promotion or a raise. He suggested I was uppity and ungrateful. I don't want to disparage all white liberals. I know some awesome ones. However, the bigotry I face in the media industry has come exclusively from white liberals angered by my refusal to submit to their control and their superiority. I was booted from ESPN's The Sports Reporters 15, 16 years ago because I refused to adopt Mike Lupica's narrative on steroid abuse among professional athletes. All of my alleged controversial departures, let me just add this, my departure from Rupert Murdoch's Fox Sports, they were non-controversial, I'm not talking about Fox Sports. But all my alleged controversial departures had a common denominator, a white liberal who thought my existence and success were a kick in the nuts. Anti-black racism and white supremacy, oh, they exist. We're just blaming the wrong people and the wrong political ideology for their existence. Jimmy. What's up, bro? I just set fire to the rain. Yeah, you... It's my favorite fire starter. Yeah, you did that. You did that. I wanna be just also on Monday's show, Jason discusses a Washington Post report basically accusing Tucker Carlson of being a racist. I think that Jason has some pretty interesting takes on this matter. I think you'll want to listen to this one. It's pretty good. The Washington Post is preparing a hit piece on Fox News superstar Tucker Carlson. Post-investigative reporter Michael Cranish left me a voice message on Tuesday requesting an interview. Carlson, Cranish relayed, was the subject of the request. This will serve as my response to Cranish's appeal. Over the past year, Carlson's nightly monologues have become must-see TV for me, and I don't watch much television. I gave up on cable news shows and major network scripted TV shows years ago. The last cable news show I watched regularly was The Ed Show on MSNBC. Yeah, Ed Show on MSNBC. Sure. I related to the host, Ed Schultz, a former small college football player who had a brief tryout with the Oakland Raiders. 
Schultz had a working class point of view. MSNBC, of course, canceled the show in 2015. Shortly after that, I bailed on all cable news. I avoided all the partisan madness throughout most of the Trump presidency. Other than sporting events, Netflix and Amazon Prime movies, for about four years, I never turned on my television. COVID changed my habits. I was living in Los Angeles along the Wilshire Corridor. I could no longer hang out at Uncle Jimmy's favorite spot, Wally's in Beverly Hills, or frequent the iPick movie theater two blocks from my apartment. Plus, I found our reaction to COVID fascinating and frightening. I began recreational use of cable news. When Reverend George Floyd Luther III was assassinated, I started mainlining CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. America was a 20-car pileup, and I couldn't divert my eyes from the wreckage. By the time our elites finished fortifying the election, I was, by my standards, a cable news junkie. In my attempt to make sense of COVID, St. George Floyd, and President Joe Biden's landslide victory, I watched a couple of hours of debate cable news per day. I started rehab in December. I quit CNN and MSNBC cold turkey. They're just too nuts. They're just too godless and too secular. Their religion is race and racism. I'm now back to watching sports, movies made before 2015, reruns of The Wire, Sopranos, and The Shield, and Tucker Carlson's monologues. I suspect the Washington Post reporter wants to query me about why I used to make regular appearances on Carlson's show and why I haven't, I haven't appeared in recent months. I'm sure Michael Crandish wants me to defend Carlson against allegations that he's racist. I haven't appeared on Carlson's show in recent months because I've been focused on launching my own show, this one here, Fearless with Jason Whitlock for Blaze Media, and because Fox News hasn't made me a financial offer that makes it worth my time. Hmm. When I was a partner at the startup Outkick.com, it was difficult to generate traction and relevance without appearing on cable news. <laughs> Blaze Media, we got an infrastructure, we got a team, we got success, we got a foundation that's able to lift this show and lift me and Uncle Jimmy without any assistance. A business. I may return to appearing on Carlson's show at some point in the future. His show is terrific and important. He's the sole TV personality speaking unvarnished truth to governmental abuse of power. He's the lone TV host practicing journalism on a daily basis. It's incredible and inspiring to watch. Is Tucker Carlson racist? Dumb question. Every single human being on the planet is inflicted with biases, including Michael Cranish and everyone else at the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc. I've met Carlson several times. I don't know Tucker Carlson. What I see and hear of him on television doesn't remotely strike me as anti-black. He strikes me as a person who loves the U.S. Constitution, the United States of America, Jesus Christ, and American freedom. He appears to have a problem with people who don't love or appreciate this country. I have the exact same problem. And unlike Michael Cranish and Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, all of my family and the majority of my friends are black. Also, unlike Bezos and other liberal elites, when I've been placed in a position to influencing hiring decisions, <laughs> black people have benefited the most. My family, friends, and coworkers are mostly black. So let's don't start with the bullshit that any black person who defends Tucker Carlson is a sellout or has a problem with black people. Miss me with that BS. Carlson doggedly pursues the truth from a pro-America, pro-Christian worldview. I love it. We need more of it. If being pro-Jesus and pro-America makes you anti-black, then I would respectfully ask my black brethren to reevaluate our political point of view. Or I would ask the white liberal gatekeepers of black culture to reassess their definition of blackness. That's what's transpiring here. Under the guise of combating racism, black people are being asked to turn their backs on Jesus and their country. 
got to stop. Black people must recognize that their white political overseers are using allegations of racism to disconnect us from Jesus, our country, and the truth. We, black people, we've been programmed to view the world through a racial lens rather than a Christian lens. We foolishly think our racial biases are perfectly acceptable and white peoples are unforgivable. I don't know Carlson in a real way. Perhaps in his personal life, he is as non-PC as I am. Trust me, when I'm not on camera, I say a lot of things liberal elites would find justifiably offensive. So does my mom, so does my dad, so do many of my family members and friends. We're all flawed. We should all be grateful that Jesus Christ sacrificed for our sins. But rather than debate Carlson's worldview, corporate media would rather frame him as a bigot, just a ploy to distract from corporate media's unchecked anti-black bigotry. Rachel Maddow thinks far less of black people than Tucker Carlson does. See, you know what, Jim? A lot of people are gonna think Rachel Maddow. I'm talking about Rachel Maddow. But Rachel Maddow is actually my nickname for somebody else. On Tuesday's show, our guy, Stephen A. Smith. We all know about it. We all heard the debacle. I think Jason's take on this one was pretty interesting. Believe it or not, he kind of tried to throw Stephen a bone. Take a listen. Someone needs to tell Stephen A. Smith it's a mistake to bow to the Twitter mob. Never do it. Smith, the $12 million a year ESPN broadcaster, issued an apology yesterday for no good reason. Twitter pretended that Smith offended Asians when he pointed out that baseball star Shohei Otani isn't the ideal marketing face for Major League Baseball because his English is so poor that he speaks through an interpreter. On his ESPN debate show, First Take, Smith told co-host Max Kellerman this. But the fact that you got a foreign player that doesn't speak English, that needs an interpreter, believe it or not, I think contributes to harming the game to some degree when that's your box office appeal. It needs to be somebody like Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, those guys. And unfortunately, at this moment in time, that's not the case. This is not a remotely new or controversial sentiment that Smith just expressed. Smith wasn't disparaging Otani. He wasn't making a factual point about, he was making a factual point about what's undermining the popularity of Major League Baseball in America. Regretfully, I have experience when it comes to disparaging Asian professional athletes. Nearly a decade ago, at the peak of NBA player Jeremy Lin's sanity, Jeremy Lin, we called it Lin sanity, I tweeted an inappropriate joke about Lin. I wrote and delivered a sincere apology for disparaging Lin and diminishing an important, an important moment for Asian sports fans. I have zero problem with admitting a mistake and apologizing when I've done something wrong. Problem here is, Smith didn't do anything wrong. Only in these globalist times could someone interpret Smith's comments as harmful. Blue Check Twitter believes everything that comes out of a public figure's mouth must land perfectly at every location on the globe. Blue Check Twitter believes Smith's comments are <laughs> an extension of Donald Trump's America First agenda. That is Smith's crime prioritizing America above other countries and sharing a thought a Trump supporter might have. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, home of the former greatest spectacle in racing, the Indy 500. In the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s, Indy cars lost traction and relevance to NASCAR because American racing fans preferred Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon over Brazilian Emerson Fittipaldi and Dutchman Ari Leyendijk. In fact, the argument over foreign dominance began raging in the 1970s in racing. Eventually, American open wheel racing had a civil war. A band of revolutionary car owners 
seceded from USAC, the main governing body, and formed CART, a rebel rival. The war lasted for nearly 20 years before Indianapolis Motor Speedway president Tony George ended the feud by starting the Indy Racing League. Let me give you a more recent example from the sports world. From 2006 to 2013, Brazilian Anderson Silva held the title of UFC middleweight champion. It's the longest title streak in UFC history. He defended his title 16 straight times. Silva is arguably the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all times. You know what other fighters and UFC fans complained about during Silva's reign? He spoke through an interpreter most of the time. He preferred to do interviews in Portuguese. Silva isn't nearly as popular as Conor McGregor, Chuck Liddell, or Ronda Rousey. Not speaking English hurts American popularity. I'm sure not speaking Japanese would undermine an American baseball player's popularity in Japan. Stephen A. Smith is being targeted at ESPN. His salary is inflated and problematic. No matter how hard he works, no matter how many shows he fronts, his salary is a problem because it dwarfs Maria Taylor's salary. Right now, ESPN is Wakanda. A lot of people miss the point of the Black Panther movie and fictional Wakanda. T'Challa, T'Challa, the Black Panther, was nothing more than a puppet for the black women of Wakanda. Mm. Watch the movie again. At every turn, the Black Panther sought the advice, counsel, support, and approval of black women. The Black Panther is a celebration of the black matriarchy, period. ESPN is Wakanda. Maria Taylor wants to be the Black Panther. She sees herself as Stephen A's equal. She's not. So Stephen A has to be cut down to Maria's size. Black Twitter, the power source of the black matriarchy, is assisting Maria in her contract push and the devaluation of Smith. Yesterday's Stephen A controversy was a total rig job orchestrated to, to create the impression that Smith is problematic. Smith should have never legitimized it with a written apology. He even let his handlers convince him that his words had some loose connection to a spike in anti-Asian violence. Smith wrote, in this day and age, indubitably, with all the violence being perpetrated against the Asian American community, indubitably, my comments, I'll bet unintentional and loquacious, were clearly insensitive and regrettable. I added a few words there, but you get the point. Smith is from Hollis, Queens, New York. Black bodies have been dropping in Hollis, Queens for 40 years. The violence perpetrated, tolerated, and celebrated within the black community is a nationwide pandemic. No one is apologizing for that. Never apologize to the Twitter mob. Woo! <laughs> now that's a vibe. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> On Wednesday, we had our first installment of what we're gonna start calling our Wednesday Harmony Session. And this is gonna, we're gonna just take a topic uh, going on, and we're going to sit down with some pastors and find out what it is that God actually says about it. And on this episode, we had Pastor Bobby Harrington, and we also had Pastor Morpheus Hayward, and they both stepped in with us to talk about critical race theory versus critical Bible scripture. Very interesting. Take a listen. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, and welcome to a very special edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. It is Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you. And on Wednesdays, we are going to try to do a show directed at promoting harmony, in particular, racial harmony. Uh, we want to use this platform to try to undermine the racial divisiveness that has overtaken this country. And so 
I have a very special Wednesday show planned for us every week. This will be the first attempt at that. I'm going to start where I always start by starting a fire and, get, and laying a foundation for discussion for the entire show. All right, earlier this week, a Twitter user asked me an annoying and racially charged question. He said, I saw you talk about Maria Taylor and Rachel Nichols' situation. Why, as a black man, do you hate black people, black women in particular? I'm just asking so I can understand why you don't get it. End of the tweet. I do not hate black people. It's a ridiculous allegation, but it's an accusation I hear frequently over social media. It's a claim worth addressing. Twitter is ground zero for the promotion of critical race theory, an academic construct that argues that all aspects of American life, from political policy to social engagement, can be explained by anti-black racism. My Twitter accuser likely has no idea that a 40-year-old academic theory fuels his slanderous charge against me. Social media teaches black users and their alleged allies to answer displeasing criticism with the cry of racism or anti-blackness. For many people, CRT is a new religion, a replacement for critical biblical scripture. They have been programmed by social media and corporate media to analyze the world through a secular racial lens. I think that's a huge mistake, a very big mistake. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, told in the Bible, explains the world. That's why on Wednesdays, this show, Fearless with Jason Whitlock, we will try to focus on a biblical understanding of the world. We will attempt to bring in two Christian pastors and have them discuss a topic in the news cycle from a biblical point of view. Today, Pastor Bobby Harrington from Nashville's Harpeth Christian Church and Pastor Orpheus Haywood, Hayward from Atlanta's Renaissance Church of Christ will join me. We're gonna discuss critical race theory. Is it dividing America along racial lines? Is any part of CRT justified in scripture? Can CRT and Christianity coexist? The goal of our Wednesday conversations will be to promote racial harmony through a deeper understanding of the Word of God. America is splintering along racial lines at a level reminiscent of the Civil War. I believe that followers of Christ have a moral responsibility to address and heal the splintering. CBS, AKA Critical Biblical Scripture, must replace CRT AKA critical race theory. My Twitter accuser could use a dose of CBS. It would help him see that I don't hate black people. I love all people. My faith dictates that. Hating black people would require me to hate myself, my parents, my siblings, my cousins, and the majority of my friends. I don't hate myself or them. I do want to educate them on the dangers of analyzing the world through a racial or CRT lens. My faith and worldview put me at odds with disciples of CRT and cultures that contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. My faith puts me at war with myself first and foremost. I'm hypercritical of my gluttony and my sexual lust. You've heard me talk about my affinity for strip clubs and loose women. I don't have to tell you about my love of gluttony. You can see it for yourself. I don't hate myself. I'm critical of myself because I want to do better, and I am doing better. I've made all kinds of changes in my life because of my faith. I have this same desire for others. My job as a broadcaster and critic requires me to espouse opinions on the actions of others. A set of principles taught to me in the church and reinforced by my experience as a football player, that drives my point of view on the issues I discuss on this show and on other platforms. My criticism of Maria Taylor is a byproduct of my belief that her actions are, and, and her dispute with Rachel Nichols are biblically unsound. Nichols sought rec reconciliation through private and public remorse and repentance. Taylor refused to forgive and work with Nichols. God is crystal clear on forgiveness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. For if you forgive of other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. I could go on endlessly. Social media and critical race theory rely on a different set of principles than what's taught in the church and in traditional sports culture. Skin color drives social media and CRT. My worldview isn't driven by race. It's at odds with people who think race explains everything. On Thursday's show with Fearless with Jason Whitlock, he discussed the Richard Sherman debacle. Take a look, take a listen, tell me what you think. Let's get started with Richard Sherman and a fire starter. NFL star Richard Sherman is a victim, but he's not a victim of what corporate media and social media will argue over the coming days. Sherman spent most of Wednesday and half of today sobering up and stewing inside a Seattle area correctional facility. Police arrested the free agent cornerback on suspicion of burglary, domestic violence, suspicion of resisting arrest and malicious mischief. Police apprehended Sherman outside his in-law's home. He allegedly tried to break down their front door. Emergency 911 calls from a construction worker, Sherman's wife, Ashley, and her uncle paint a chilling picture of a man out of control. I suspect over the coming days, we will read and hear speculation that CTE, Head trauma played a role in the 11-year NFL vet's meltdown. Sherman is one of the good ones, a real credit to his race, according to Joe Biden's America. Sherman stands for all the right things. He believes that what happened to Reverend George Floyd Luther III on the holy day of May 25th, 2020, is an accurate representation of how America treats its black citizens. On May 31st of the last year, as Black Lives Matter and Antifa protested the death of St. George Floyd with a nationwide looting, arson, and violence spree, Richard Sherman tossed a Molotov cocktail from the comfort of his Twitter feed, tweeting, quote, what will the response be to justice? Racism has been around forever, and too many excuses have been made for it. If you're sitting by watching it and judging the reaction, you're part of the problem with what is going on because you allow yourself to overlook the cause. He then later tweeted that same day, my profession or my education changed the fact that I'm a black man in America. And to that end, I will continue to fight for equality for people that are treated unjust in the country. And if that offends you or makes you uncomfortable, then maybe we're starting to make progress, end quote. Sherman, a multi-multi-millionaire who began his journey poor in South Central Los Angeles, believes that systemic racism defines his homeland far more than systemic freedom and opportunity. He is a high-profile ally in the Great Reset movement to dramatically change the way America and the world operate. As best they can, corporate media will protect Sherman at all costs. At some point, a race card will likely be played in Sherman's defense. Twitter's algorithms will promote an illogical, what about this narrative? Why is the media acting like Sherman is Thad Wilson? I, I mean, Chad Wilson. Oops, I mean, I mean, Chad Wheeler, Go. or whatever his name is. You know, the white Seahawks offensive lineman who beat up his black girlfriend? The media ignored that whole thing. I mean, that's racism. It is highest. Richard Sherman's wife said Richard didn't hurt nobody. Richard Sherman is one of the most famous NFL players of all time. He's a Hall of Fame caliber defensive back. He's charismatic and extroverted. His long dreadlocks give him a distinctive look. He's arguably one of the most easily identifiable professional athletes in America. No one knows or cares about Chad Wheeler. Sherman, with his play and his mouth, 
has demanded we take notice of him. Let's send him down to the field and Aaron Edwards. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. L.O.B. In the coming days, it will be argued that all the attention is unfair. Already, ESPN is ignoring details that damn Sherman. Here's how the worldwide leader in sports describes Sherman's arrest, writing, quote, a spokesman said the situation between Sherman and police turned after he was informed they had probable cause to place him under arrest. At that point, Sherman began to walk away and increased his pace, at which time the K-9 unit was deployed to aid in the arrest." End quote. Police allege Sherman fought with them, and that's why a dog was used. Anyone who has listened to the 911 calls from Sherman's wife would believe he fought with police. As of this morning, ESPN chose not to quote from Ashley Sherman's frantic 911 call. Take a listen to this. 911, what are you reporting? Um, I, I, I need I need officers to my house now. My husband is drunk and blizzard. What's the himself. Stop, stop. I'm, What's the address? Are there any is, weapons? Stop. We, are there we any took, we took to no, me. there's no gun. I'm, I'm saying there are no weapons, ma'am. There are, no, there are no finish. weapons. You need to stop interrupting me so I can get the information I need to get officers expedited. I need officers here now. What's he doing that, that you think he's going to harm he's, himself? He's being, he's, he's being aggressive. He has sent text messages. I took the I took the keys out. They're in your car. He's trying to leave now in the house. He's being aggressive. He's wrestling with my uncle. He's threatening to kill himself. He has sent text messages to people saying he's going to hang himself. <sighs> He, and he's saying that if the police show up, that so please don't shoot is what I'm asking. Okay, wait, say that again. He has no weapon. He says if the he police show he up, said, He said if the police show up, that he'll try to fight them. Okay, and how much has he had to drink tonight? Two bottles. Two bottles of what? Now, a vodka now. and Hennessy. Okay, hard. So... Richard Sherman's wife says Richard said he was going to fight the police if they showed up. She said that he drank a bottle of vodka and Hennessy. The police say he fought them and released canine dogs on it. But ESPN, they ignored all that. ESPN also didn't quote from her uncle's 911 call. The uncle said that Sherman threatened violence against his wife and cut her off in traffic. All right, I'm painting the picture that I have zero sympathy for Sherman. I actually do have some. I'm not being sarcastic. He's a victim. My opinion that Sherman is melting down from years of leftist programming. He was educated at Stanford University in Northern California. He spent the first seven years of his NFL career in Seattle, the home of Chaz an Antifa stronghold. The last three years, he played in leftist Mecca, San Francisco. Sherman has been radicalized. He's far out over his intellectual skis. We sit around and think that millionaire athletes and celebrities are living a dream life. They're not, particularly in this day and age, when they are required to promote an illogical, divisive racial narrative. Athletes are pulled in a thousand different directions. At age 20 and 21, they're tasked with being the primary providers and leaders for their immediate and extended families. They don't know who they can really trust. All of it is very stressful. I'm not surprised that Richard Sherman is cracking up and has turned to the bottle, and now this sort of chaos and dysfunction has spread to his extended family and the police are now involved. On Friday's show, Jason discussed Roger Goodell, 
and the NFL and their decision to play the Black National Anthem. That should fix everything. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. All right. Upon releasing Richard Sherman from custody Thursday evening, the presiding judge fell, uh, hailed the football star as a pillar of the community. Police arrested Sherman after the free agent cornerback violently tried to break into the home of his in-laws, threatened to kill himself and harm his wife, and drunkenly wrecked his Mercedes at a construction site. Something is clearly wrong with one of Seattle's pillars. Fortunately for Sherman, he plays for the right political team. That team is going to protect Sherman at all costs. That team is what I call the Alphabet Mafia. BLM, LGBTQIA, plus IMCA. <laughs> the Alphabet Mafia is the new Dallas Cowboys, America's team. The team every kid dreams about making. You're wondering why the NFL will play the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing? Before every game in the opening season, it's an initiation ritual ritual placed on the league for Alphabet Mafia membership. As the Sherman case demonstrates, membership in the mob has its privileges. You can show early signs of O.J. Simpson disease and still be stamped as a pillar in your community. An uncle of your wife can call 911 and tell the police that you threaten violence against your wife, the corporate media will pretend the call never took place. Membership has its privileges. Let's say Patriots coach Bill Belichick, friend of Donald Trump, had been accused of actions attributed to Richard Sherman. Would a judge label Belichick a pillar of the Boston community? Would the judge be skewered for giving Belichick white privilege? Yesterday, it was reported the NFL will make the Black National Anthem standard procedure at its pregame festivities. It was also reported that social justice messages will return on the back of helmets and throughout the stadiums. The news surprised some sports fans. Even the super woke NBA backed away from its social justice messaging this season. Words Black Lives Matter were stripped from the basketball courts. This past NBA season felt halfway normal. The games no longer felt like ESPN's Maria Taylor was wagging a finger of blame as you watched the game. Sports fans wrongly assumed the NFL would make the same pivot to normalcy the NBA did. Nope, didn't happen. Different men have different standards to achieve maid status in the alphabet mafia. NFL has more hoops to jump through. It's a process. Third string Raiders defensive end, Carl Nassib being celebrated for coming out as gay was part of the process. The NFL social media campaign promoting the, promoting the league as gay, transgender, non-binary, and Winnie the Pooh was part of the process. So was pretending that women's soccer player Carly Lloyd could kick in the NFL. And so was this Super Bowl commercial based on the fallacy that a little black girl received a football scholarship to play cornerback. Remember this? They said she was too small. They said she was too slow. Too weak. They said she'd never get to the next level. Never inspire a new generation. Never get a football scholarship. Yeah, people have made a lot of assumptions about Tony. But I've never been a big fan of assumptions. Oh, man. Tony Harris, the young lady shown in that commercial, she didn't even play on her high school team. They let her in on her high school team for like a kickoff for one play, but somehow she got a football scholarship. Embracing the Black National Anthem is part of the process for mob status for the NFL. Continuing the pagan worship of good Dr. Reverend George Floyd Luther III 
is part of the process. At some point, the Alphabet Mafia will demand, and the league will acquiesce, that Meghan Markle be named head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. How does the NFL so desperately want to join the Alphabet Mafia? Because they've been promised if they promote the appropriate narrative, that corporate media will quit terrorizing the league's brand with false and exaggerated accusations of racism and a lack of safety. The NFL's public relations problems regarding black head coaches and head trauma will magically disappear. Poof! All gone. The league has been bullied into submission. Poor and weak leadership of Commissioner Roger Goodell and Executive Vice President of Football Operations Troy Vincent has made pop culture's strongest force, the NFL, vulnerable. Football is being brought into the secret society, the fraternal satanic organizations reshaping global society. Global elites cannot socially engineer the changes they want without controlling the number one American TV show on five different television networks. That's CBS, that's Fox, that's ESPN, that's NBC, and the NFL Network. The NFL is the strongest thing going. The NFL wants to be treated like Richard Sermon. So it's gonna lift its voice and sing until China's cash registers ring. All right, y'all, thank you for listening. I'm Uncle Jimmy. Catch our show every day on the Blaze Network. Fearless with Jason Whitlock. You can also catch us on YouTube. Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Check it out. Enjoy the show. Hit that subscribe button. We'll see you next week. Remember, I love you like I play, because damn what my nephew say. Holla. Oh,